What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Zach Mayo, Doctor of Physical Therapy. Today, I'm joined by Landon Hickmott. Landon is an up-and-coming researcher specializing in individualization, autoregulation, and velocity-based training as it pertains to the sport of powerlifting. Landon recently finished his tenure as a graduate researcher in the Muscle Physiology Lab at Florida Atlantic University and will be pursuing his PhD at the University of Saskatchewan this January. In addition to his work in the lab, Landon practices what he preaches. He is a nationally qualified powerlifter in the Canadian Powerlifting Union and is a certified strength and conditioning specialist under the NSCA. I'm stoked to have him on to talk about velocity-based training and how it can be applied to the rehab and performance setting. So without further ado, let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode. I'm here with Landon Hickmott. Um, Landon specializes in research of velocity-based training, and he himself is a registered powerlifter. So I thought there'd be nobody better to come and talk about um, this unique performance uh, measurement and uh, a unique aspect to really overlooking and measuring how we are performing specific exercises and specific movements. So before we start talking about velocity-based training, I'm going to give it over to Landon so he can introduce himself and talk a little bit about his background and um, how he came to really start to study velocity-based training and get into the research and um, other aspects of it as, as well. Cool. Thanks. Thanks, Zach, for those kind words. Um, as Zach mentioned, um, I'm a researcher specializing in velocity-based training. Um, so I did my undergrad at uh, University of the Fraser Valley and then did my master's degree at Florida Atlantic University under Dr. Michael Zordos, uh, again, specializing in velocity-based training and the relationship between velocity, velocity loss, RAR-based RPE. Uh, and then I'll be continuing on uh, that research line at the University of Saskatchewan under Dr. Scotty Butcher and Dr. Phil Chilibeck. Uh, and then I'm also really excited to have Dr. Eric Helms on my committee as well. Uh, and as Zach mentioned, um, also a national level powerlifter in the Canadian Powerlifting Union. Uh, I've competed three times nationally uh, in 2017. Uh, I won Western Canadians. Um, and then I also come from a pretty competitive hockey background. So I played semi-professional hockey in the Western Hockey League for a very short period of time. Uh, and one is, was one of the first draft picks uh, of one of the teams. But um, I really came about uh, velocity-based training and researching it just in the past two years. Nice. Um, so I guess a good place to start with this podcast is really just introducing the concept of velocity-based training um, and really what it is. So if you could speak to that a little bit before we get into the more of the research back behind it and more of the specific aspects of velocity-based training, I think that would be a good place to start. For sure. So essentially, velocity-based training, as the name implies, of course, involves using velocity as a metric within your training. So what is it exactly does that involve? So what that involves is what's called a linear positions transducer. And that is the, a device which has a string and you hook it up to the barbell and it provides you with various velocity metrics. For example, average concentric velocity, which is arguably uh, one of the best metrics or most 
interesting metrics that we are uh, interested in per se for uh, strength sport. Uh, so that is for the squat when you're, you know, coming up in the movement during the bench press, when you're pushing it off your chest, the deadlift coming up off the floor. Um, so the average velocity at that time, there's also different metrics such as peak velocity um, and, and various others. But the most one we're most interested in is average concentric velocity. It seems to have the best at predicting 1RM as well as at predicting uh, repetitions in reserve. Nice. Um, so you just mentioned repetitions in reserve and um, testing a 1RM max, things of that nature. But we know through research that uh, they can have their limitations, especially when we talk about um, like more specific. I mean, you obviously work with more specific to the sport of powerlifting, um, but just in rehab in general as well, um, we see that RPE and um, not necessarily one rep max, but especially RPE and RIR um, can sometimes not be as accurate as we think they are. Um, especially when we get to higher level athletes um, where their rating of perceived exertion is a little bit different than somebody who hasn't trained a day in their life. Um, and I mean, it's subjective in that nature, whereas VBT is a completely objective measure um, and a lot of times reveals things that RPE doesn't necessarily reflect and that RIR doesn't necessarily reflect. Um, I know that personally when I've tested athletes, not necessarily through velocity-based training, but through something like isometric dynamometry um, or something like that. Um, their confidence in their ability to produce a lot of force and to move quickly does not always reflect in the actual measurement itself. Um, so I like how velocity-based training, you get a very objective measure to how these people can actually move and with the speed that they can move. Um, and there's a lot of things that can be derived from that data as well. Um, so can you just talk about really some of the advantages of velocity-based training over percentage-based training and repetitions and reserve-based like uh, RPE? Yeah, most definitely. So um, first we'll start with percentage-based training, right? So most of you are probably familiar with percentage-based training, right? So the example I always like to give is prescribing something like three sets of 10 repetitions at 70% of your 1RM. But as Zach alluded to, what are the limitations associated with this? So the primary limitation is that reps performed at given intensities is different between athletes and across lifts. So in other words, if we were to take myself and Zach, we will get different repetitions at 70% of 1RM and therefore have a different number of repetitions in reserve or be at a different proximity to failure. And I'm gonna to touch on, I'll touch on why that's important in a second, but I'll just continue on with some of the other limitations of percentage-based training. So um, some of the other limitations include acute fluctuations and changes in 1RM. So 1RM will change from session to session as well as across a training block or in the long term. And then as well, 1RM, um, or pardon me, percentage-based training is based on a single 1RM testing session. So if you had good uh, selection of your attempts for your 1RM, or if you had an investigator, say in a research setting or a coach in a practical setting, um, 
either having good or bad administration of that test, you're basing your entire training prescription, let's say for that block, based on that single testing session. And then as well, it requires um, time away from normal training uh, if you're constantly having to retest uh, that 1RM. So as I previously mentioned, what, why does proximity to failure matter? So in other words, why does it matter how close or how far from, from uh, failure you're training? So failure training, in short, uh, it has, in the research, it has provided no additional benefit when it comes to strength or hypertrophy and even suboptimal adaptations, especially when it comes to strength. And it can elongate recovery time. So if you got to train the next day, right, elongated re recovery time, this is going to reduce your total training volume, your training intensity, it can reduce your training frequency. So those chronic adaptations and strength and hypertrophy that we're seeking, those are going to be diminished. And then on the other side of the spectrum, we might have somebody training uh, very low RPE training. So what's the issues with this? So uh, suboptimal for, for strength adaptations for the most part, and also suboptimal for hypertrophy adaptations. So we want to be, uh, you know, somewhere in that middle quote unquote optimal range of RPE or how close we are uh, training to failure. Uh, and then what are the limitations associated with uh, RIR-based RPE training. So what is RIR-based RPE training? So repetitions in reserve is simply how uh, close or far you are from failure. So for example, 10 RP, you have zero reps in reserve, nine RP, one rep in reserve, uh, eight RP, two reps in reserve. So for example, if you did, uh, you know, 70% of one RM for 10 repetitions, uh, rated at an eight RP, you'd have two repetitions in reserve. But the key there is the rating. So of course, the scale itself is objective, but the, the, the missing uh, component that people miss is that you provide ratings of your RPE. And in the literature, these have been demonstrated to be incredibly inaccurate. So this was demonstrated in a 2019 study by Zordos. Uh, so in other words, subjects performed a 70% of 1RM squat to failure. And in the, while they were squatting, they had to verbally indicate when they thought they had five reps in reserve, three reps in reserve, and one repetition in reserve. And what we found was, or what they found, pardon me, I was not there during the time of this data collection, is that <laughs> their, their ratings were actually well below what their RPE values actually were. So that's kind of, in, in summary, the limitations of percentage-based training and RPE-based training. And then the advantages of velocity-based training is, of course, the, the objective measurement of that. And the primary advantage of absolute velocity, so in other words, um, the average concentric velocity, is that at each RPE value, so if you're at a 10 RPE, 9 RPE, 8 RPE, it's going to have a specific absolute velocity associated with each of those RPE values. And a 2019 study by Miranda Vera and colleagues demonstrated that these are highly reliable or stable at each percentage of 1RM. So what do I mean by that? So if you're at 80% of 1RM or 70% of 1RM and you take both of those sets to an 8RPE, two repetitions in reserve, the absolute velocity associated with that is, is very similar. So that's good news, right? Okay, it's reliable at each RPE. 
Second advantage, uh, recent study by Benad Vides Ubrick, I believe, 2020, demonstrated that at each percentage of 1RM, it's also stable or reliable. And uh, third point is that we have found, uh, Banyard 2017 found that it's stable from session to session. So in other words, if you can um, develop an individualized profile, which has those absolute velocities at each RPE value and each percentage of 1RM, you can train and know exactly how far you are from failure or what percentage of 1RM is on the bar. So in summary, that's kind of the, the disadvantage of percentage-based training and RPE-based training and how uh, absolute velocities within velocity-based training can kind of rectify those issues. But if you noticed, I kind of like um, a conceptual framework. So in other words, conceptually integrating percentage-based training with velocity and RPE-based training with velocity as well. Yeah, so I mean... Again, one of the reasons I was somewhat drawn to velocity-based training, I've been trying to educate myself a little bit more on it, is the objective manner that it holds compared to the RPE scale. Um, and like you said, one of the nice things about VBT is um, you know, that one rep max or that RPE can change very a vast amount from session to session. Um, and from like a rehabilitation standpoint, especially when we have um, individuals that are going through injuries or coming back, whether it be post-op or a soft tissue injury or sports injury or whatnot, that is even more true, I think, throughout the realm that we have so many different factors that can change that number, whether it be psychosocial factors, they were just having a bad day. Um, I mean, there's a lot of different things that can change that one rep max and that RPE. I mean, if somebody is even, it could be something as simple as, you know, they're just tired that day. That RPE can change very, very quickly from like a five to an eight. And it's not necessarily an accurate representation of their, the performance of that specific movement. It can more so just be the tax on their neuromuscular system or their nervous system in general. Um, so I like how VBT essentially um, cuts through a lot of that and gives you a very objective measure. Um, and you can correlate that easily to, you know, the IRR, IR, oh my gosh, can't speak, RIR, RPE, and percentage based training. And then you know, we're going to touch on this in a moment about how you can construct that into an individualized velocity profile and track that athlete or track that individual through multiple sessions. Um, because it's, it's very useful to be as targeted as physically possible with what you want as like a clinician trying to get something out of the patient or having a goal for that patient. Um, so, I mean, again, I think there's a lot of benefits over of velocity-based training over those type of, of methods. And it's even nicer that you can incorporate said methods into velocity-based training. So there's a nice mutual relationship that it has. Um, so when we talk about, and you touched on this, about really developing those individual velocity profiles um, for specific individuals. And I know we touched on, you know, absolute velocities 
Um, but if you want to go back to the difference between like absolute velocities and velocity loss to explain the individual velocity profiles, because I know that has a component in there, um, we can move on to that and talk about that. For sure. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll just kind of back up and, and, like you said, address the difference between absolute velocities and, and velocity loss. So typically in the literature, and I'm not going to go in crazy detail, but velocity loss is the most commonly used metric when we're dealing with uh, load prescription or most more commonly volume auto-regulation when it comes to velocity-based training. So what is velocity loss? So velocity loss is the percentage decrease from the fastest repetition in the set, which is typically the first repetition in the set. And it's a large indicator of both neuromuscular as well as metabolic fatigue. But it, it has some advantages. So the, the, the advantages are the neuromuscular adaptations associated with training at lower velocity loss thresholds um, in the range of about zero to 25%. Um, and then once you get up to about 40% velocity loss, that's kind of associated with uh, negative neuromuscular adaptations in regards to strength. Um, so just touching on some of those neuromuscular adaptations, so things like, you know, increased force production, increased motor unit recruitment, uh, synchronous firing of motor units, uh, increased rate of force development, you know, we could go on and on. But the limitation with velocity loss is that although it has those beneficial neuromuscular uh, characteristics or adaptations associated with them, it, it has a lot, a lot of limitations. So as I said, right, it's based on the first rep uh, velocity and the percentage decrease from that. And the issue with that is that first rep velocity can fluctuate quite a bit, but that last rep velocity at which we're terminating the set, and it, if it's held constant, but that first one is fluctuating, the velocity loss percentage can fluctuate upwards of you know plus or minus uh, 10%. So let's say you're training to a, you want to train to a 20% velocity loss threshold. Well, if that first rep velocity is fluctuating, what's going to happen is you're going to terminate it at a different uh, RPE value or a different proximity to failure. And the other issue is that uh, we know velocity profiles must be individualized. So in other words, if different individuals have a first rep velocity, say at 70% of 1RM, and they both train to a 20% velocity loss threshold, one individual may be at, say, a 6 RPE, and another individual may be at a 9 RPE. So although it has the, the neuromuscular adaptations, which I really like, it does post some limitations when we're dealing with how far from failure uh, when we're comparing individuals and even the same individual on the same exercise just because that first rep velocity can fluctuate. So that's kind of velocity loss in a, in a nutshell. It's largely to do with the neuromuscular adaptations. It does have its limitations though. And what I'm trying to get people to get away from is using velocity loss as a metric for proximity to failure or how close from failure you are. So absolute velocities are simply the average concentric velocity associated with um, either each RPE value or each percentage of 1RM value. And as I stated previously, 
um, those are those are stable, right? So those are very advantageous. So in other words, let's say an individual at an eight RP, uh, the absolute velocity associated with that with that is 0.30 meters per second. I'm just making this up. This will be specific to the athlete and the lift, but that's going to stay the same and that's stable. Whereas velocity loss is not. So again, I use velocity loss kind of for the neuromuscular adaptations components. Integrate that uh, as well with absolute velocities, but I prefer to use absolute velocities when we're dealing with uh, how far from failure you're training. So hopefully that makes does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I like how um, you know we talk about the neuromuscular aspect of things compared to uh, summarize it like essentially like how close you are to failure um because those are two separate things that we try like from a physical therapy standpoint even from a strength and conditioning standpoint you know that neuromuscular component is so important because if you don't have that no matter what you do the the strength is not going to be optimized or the strength gains that you make whether that be a hypertrophy or absolute strength or power it's not going to be optimized in any way if you don't have that neuromuscular component. So being able to train that neuromuscular component with such specificity. And again, like you said, there are limitations um, with any tool. There's no perfect tool that we have. That's just the way the world is. Um, but I think it gets very close and, and does a much better job than a lot of other tools. And I think that's the most important point. Um, but being able to separate that neuromuscular component from training towards failure and then being able to combine those two and look at them, being able to look at them separately, but also being able to um, put them together and have them play off of one another is incredibly beneficial, especially when we talk about um, a lot of specific injuries or a lot of specific conditions in uh, the world of rehab and strength and conditioning, where we know that the first thing we really need to focus on is that neuromuscular component. So with this, we have a very specific way to look at that and to address that more specifically than going towards failure, which can be deleterious in a lot of um, training components. Yeah, most, most definitely for sure. And I, I really liked how you said um, how to integrate the, the models. And that's kind of um, what I've really tried to do is integrate, like I, like we previously mentioned, RP-based training, percentage-based training uh, with absolute velocities and velocity loss as well. And like I said, I, I use personally, I uh, use velocity loss for the, for the neuromuscular adaptations uh, and then use absolute velocities for quantifying proximity to failure or the percentage of 1RM on the bar. Yeah. Um, and I think it's kind of important to touch on um, kind of the, the differences between uh, proximity to failure and velocity loss uh, uh, briefly. So um, I, I prefer to use um, absolute velocities to quantify proximity to failure. And, and kind of why is this the case? And I'm not going to dive into, into too much of the research, but we have we have three studies demonstrating that high RPE training, training at about a seven to nine, is superior to five to six uh, for strength adaptations. When it comes to hypertrophy, interestingly, there's actually no, no difference. So 
a lot of people think you need to train really close to failure when it comes to hypertrophy. I would make the argument that the evidence is probably lacking and it's probably actually further from failure than, than what most people think. Um, so I kind of like to use the RPE recommendations first when I'm prescribing um, sessions and integrate velocity loss into that uh, just simply because in, in all six studies, there's actually no difference in 1RM strength between all the different velocity loss thresholds that, that they're comparing. So again, velocity loss does have those advantageous neuromuscular adaptations, but I like to use um, the RP data first to quantify proximity to failure and then integrate the absolute velocities into there for a more accurate quantification of proximity to failure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, um, you know, even though we talked about the kind of the advantages of velocity-based training over percentage-based training and RPE, um, it's important to recognize that really the best way to really look at them is through integrating all the systems together to get the most accurate representation. I think when you talk about the bigger picture, just utilizing percentage-based training or RPE or just velocity-based training, there's specific aspects of the training and specific aspects of the stimulus you're trying to get um, that can be missed or can be not as targeted um, as specifically as you would like. Um, so being able to integrate that, you know, integrate velocity-based training with all of the ones that we're probably more so familiar with in the clinic and in the strength and conditioning realm. Not that people aren't familiar with velocity-based training, but I think it's starting to pick up steam now. Um, I think it's that's an important aspect. We always talk about it's like a tool in your toolbox. Um, it's not the only thing that you use, but if you utilize that for the right person and combine it with the other tools in your toolbox, you typically get a much better and more specific effect on the client or the patient or whatever you're trying to achieve rather than just utilizing one method and running with that and not recognizing its limitations. So I think like being able to recognize some of the limitations of EBT like you um, pointed out is also very important to recognize its potential, but also to recognize that um, its integration with other systems is even more so of what it should be utilized with. Um, so we talked about the absolute velocity, we talked about velocity loss. Um, so one of the big things that you do is helping to develop individualized velocity profiles. Um, so it can be somewhat of a mathematical process a little bit. Um, but can you just talk us through the, the general principles and the general methods for developing that velocity profile? Yeah. So that's a, that's a really good question. So, or a really good comment there. So that is a large part of, of kind of what I've done, uh, especially with my brand. Um, so I created a pretty novel model, uh, in my opinion, that kind of integrates um, RP-based training, percentage-based training, absolute velocities, as well as velocity loss, uh, and completely individualizes that model for, for each athlete and for each lift, and then also adapts that model over time as the athlete becomes more experienced. So as an athlete becomes more experienced, the velocities uh, are going to be come slower at each percentage of 1RM and at each RPE value, 
just because as we alluded to, they're going to become more neuromuscularly efficient. Um, so I'm not going to dive into exactly how to create that model on the podcast. I'm going to go over a simpler model just because that one is very complex. I do think it's the best, the best model. If you guys are interested, I have both, uh, on my YouTube channel. So it's just Landon Hickmont. It's called the original seminar as well as the bonus seminar. I would highly recommend checking those out. Uh, if you're interested in creating that model and it's specifically geared towards, towards powerlifting. Um, but, but just simply to provide you guys with something because I definitely want to provide something, right? Um, how do you go about developing a load velocity profile? So typically in the literature, it involves uh, plotting both average concentric velocity and percentage of 1RM and then running a linear regression equation to get the um, velocity associated with each percentage of 1RM. Uh, but this has, this has some limitations. So it, typically it tends to substantially overpredict 1RM actually. So what I just typically like to do for a very simple method to provide individuals with, with something is simply just work up to a 1RM and cross-reference those velocities with each percentage of 1RM. And then what you do is rather than extrapolate, which is typically what the literature has done, you interpolate. So you've got the uh, velocity at 1RM and velocities at different percentages as well. And then you can just interpolate those values. So for example, if the velocity at 1RM was 0.30 meters per second, the velocity at 90% of 1RM was 0 0.40 meters per second, then the velocity at 95% is 0.35, right? Super simple method. And then to integrate that with uh, RPE-based training, what you can do is perform a set to failure at which you think you can get about, say, 10 repetitions after the 1RM test and cross-reference those absolute velocities with each RP value. So for example, let's say you successfully completed 10 repetitions, failed on the 11th, repetition 10 would be a 10 RPE, and you'd record that velocity, and then you just retroactively back calculate all those absolute velocities and RP values. So repetition nine would be a nine RP, you get the absolute velocity. And if you want those half RP points, 9.5, 8.5, again, you can just interpolate those values. So that's a really simple method. And the advantages of this is that, uh, as I alluded to earlier, those are stable from session to session, of course. Again, once you get more experienced, you're going to have to update those because those are going to become slower. But once you get to a certain experience level, like they're not going to change much. Like I am not an incredibly uh, advanced powerlifter by any means. Um, I do compete at the national level, as, I, as we previously mentioned, but I'm not getting any slower on my squat, my bench press, my deadlift. I've kind of maxed that out. So hopefully that provides uh, everybody with, with something on how they can kind of go about developing a load velocity profile, integrating it with percentage-based training, RPE-based training. Um, and I can also touch on kind of what I've done uh, um, for recommendations for velocity loss. Um, so this is kind of, kind of something novel that I've done. This is kind of specifically geared towards strength athletes, but 
would have done is I've kind of cross-referenced data from a, a study by Claire Blanco 2020 with the rodriguez Rizal 2019 study to determine what are the optimal RPE ranges to maintain 0 to 25% velocity loss, to, so to maintain those positive neuromuscular adaptations. And what I like to do is integrate that into the RPE-based uh, literature so that kind of suggests that, hey, you should be training somewhere in that 5 to 10 RP range, well avoiding failure, uh, higher RPEs for strength, and then a, a, at about 7 RP plus, well avoiding failure, hypertrophy at about a 5 RP plus, well avoiding failure. Um, so what I've done here is, again, I've, I've kind of integrated, integrated these models. So in order to maintain... Um, zero to 25% velocity loss. When you're doing one repetition, I suggest, okay, five to 10 RP. Why you're only doing one rep? It's going to be 0% velocity loss. Two reps, five to nine, because when you get to, or sorry, five to nine RP, because when you get to a nine RP, that's going to be at about 25% velocity loss. And if you're going to do two reps at a 10 RP, that's kind of going to be exceeding the 25% velocity loss. And you're going to be getting some of those negative neuromuscular adaptations. And then it's simple. Three reps is about a five to eight RP, four reps, five to seven, five reps, five to six RP. And then six reps is going to be at a five RP. And if you were to perform seven repetitions at a five RP, which is kind of the bottom of the recommendation of where I usually suggest training, the issue is you're going to be above that 30% velocity loss threshold. And again, this is not to say that, hey, you shouldn't be doing about six reps. That'd be silly, right? We know yeah. that training needs to be individualized. But that's just saying, hey, roughly, where should most of your volume work be coming in if you're a strength athlete in order to optimize those neuromuscular adaptations? Mm -hmm. And then I've kind of done the same with, with the percentages of 1RM. So again, at 70%, 5 RP, 75, 5 to 6, 80, 5 to 7. 85, 5 to 8, 95 to 9. And then once you get to 90, 95%, you can get up to those 10 RPE ranges just to maintain that 0 to 25% velocity loss. So I know that was a lot, but. Yeah, no, no, it, it makes sense. Um, and if you're, like Landon mentioned, he, is a, he has a YouTube channel where he has um, a lot of lectures on exactly what he's talking about. If you're more of a, vi of a visual learner, or you need to look at this again. <laughs> um, he has a really good, he has a, a really good set of lectures on there, taking you step by step as to how to develop these individualized velocity profiles. And um, it makes a lot, it, at least to me, um, it it made a lot more sense when I could see you doing it for like a specific individual. Um, and I mean, that's how I kind of heard of you was through one of your lectures, um, and that's how I reached out and met you was through one of those lectures. Um, so they're very, very helpful and they're very in-depth and they also present a lot of the research that you've presented in this podcast, um, talking about, um, philosophy-based training and then all of the other work that you've, um, mentioned throughout, whether it be the percentage-based training or the, the comparison between percentage-based training and RPE and all of that. There's a lot of research that goes into this, obviously. Um, so, you know, one of the biggest things that I like with developing that type of profile or that, that individualized velocity profile is 
when you have those different tiers of athletes that we're talking about, um, because when you, especially in a clinical setting, you see everybody up and down the gambit. You can see people that have never done a squat with a barbell in their life. And then you can see people that are, you know, elite collegiate level, professional level athletes um, that have some freakish athletic capabilities. So being able to create such an individualized profile, I think is very unique to velocity-based training. And not only that, but you get such objective measures from it. I mean, the numbers don't lie about how they're performing. Um, and that's something that's very enticing about utilizing this. And it's also something that you can show the athlete or you can show the, the client or the, the patient, if you're a physical therapist like myself, to see, hey, look, this is the progress that you've made in being able to you know, move quickly or produce this amount of force or your muscular strength and whatnot. And it's really nice to see that rather than being like, oh, it felt easier than last time. So I guess it f- feels okay. I mean, like we said, that can change within a few hours, honestly, for being honest. Um, but having those hard facts and that hard number to show patients like, hey, look, you know, this is really the progression that we've seen and it looks really good. Um, that's, I think, like a point of education that you can give athletes and you can give to patients and clients of any type as well. And I think that's very useful um, for something like physical therapy. Like we use standardized outcome measures um, to essentially show people's progress and to show, like to document progress, whether for going through an insurance-based system or whatnot. Um, But velocity-based training is something similar to that. And we can show you hard data. Hey, man, this is how you're progressing. This is how you're not progressing. We need to take a look at things. Um, So I like the the truly objective measure of velocity-based training because it cuts through a lot of the things that we miss in the strength and conditioning realm and the physical therapy realm when we're talking about assessing somebody's strength and conditioning or uh, recovery of specific musculature or specific movements. Um, So uh, the last thing I really want to talk about was, you know, how to practically apply velocity-based training, um, whether it be like in the clinic, and I guess this will be more of a discussion because it changes from population to population. Uh, Because we talk about the individual velocity profiles, but then practically applying this in the clinic or in the gym or with a an athlete that you're going through with virtually especially during these times seems to be the new thing um you know how have you uh, pra- like used velocity based training in like the utmost practical approach to training some of your clients or some of your strength athletes that you work with yeah, so I'll, I'll touch on kind of how I use it for myself as well as my athletes yeah. first, because that's just kind of what I'm most familiar with. And then we kind of we can branch off into maybe more, um, you know, clinical based populations and how it would be best uh, suited to to apply it for them. So um, how I apply it for for myself and my athletes um, is right. What we're getting to is auto regulation, right? So I use it to auto-regulate top singles, predict 1RM, uh, for load prescription, volume auto-regulation, et cetera, et cetera. The list can go on. Um, But if we were to take, let's say, for example, 
um, you know, you're working up to a top single at a specific RPE value. Let's say you want to work up to a top single at an eight RPE or 90% of one RM. What you can do is as you're working up to that, you can cross reference those absolute velocities with a specific, with a percentage of one RM and determine the actual one RM on the bar as you're working up to a top single, just to ensure that you're not overshooting or undershooting that, that top single. So I'll just give a really brief example. So let's say, um, you know, you can squat three Oh two and a half kilos for your highly advanced lifter and you work up to, let's say 85% of one RM, which is going to be uh, 257 kilos as your final warm up before that 90% single. But you squat that and it's a little bit slower than normal. In other words, it corresponds to 87.5% of 1RM. So therefore, you can determine the actual 1RM on the bar from that set. It's not 302.5. What you do is you take 257.5, divide it by 0.875, which gives you, I believe it would be 294. And then what you can do is for that top single, Rather than prescribe 90% of 302.5, you'd prescribe 90% of 294. So as you can see, you can make very precise load adjustments as you're working up to a top single. And then I'll kind of just touch on how I use it for, for volume work, and then we can get into more of a clinical, clinical setting. Um, so how I typically use it for volume work is what I'll typically do is prescribe a total number of repetitions and a specific percentage of 1RM and then just stipulate to the athlete um, or pro and, and provide a specific rep target. Let's say 12 total reps in the, set, in the session, 85% of 1RM, a three rep target, which for most individuals is going to be about a 7RPE and about 20% velocity loss. And what they do is they just perform as many sets until they as required until they get to the 12 total repetitions, terminating each set at a seven RPE. So for example, they might get, you know, three repetitions at a seven RPE and do four sets and get to that 12 total repetitions. Uh, that's one way I do it. Um, and that's probably the most commonly employed method in which I apply velocity-based training when it comes to my strength athletes in a, in a nutshell, there's of course a, a lot more to it. Um, and, and, and I could definitely dive into that. Uh, when it comes to a clinical setting, uh, that's something, uh, I, I do less so, so I'm not really, um, super familiar, have much experience with, with that to be completely honest. So, um, Maybe, maybe Zach, you can touch on how you think it'd be most appropriate to, to apply that in a clinical setting. I know that, um, you know, individuals, elderly individuals training power is very important. So I know that maybe tracking velocity and associating that with, with power may be very beneficial as we alluded to for some of those neuromuscular adaptations, improving quality of life, um, and, and balance, things like that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, um, you know, strength training is or should be probably a principle in most rehabilitation, of course, or most rehabilitation 
I don't want to say courses, episodes or th- throughout the rehabilitation. Um, and I'm speaking mostly for like outpatients, so orthopedic and sports. Um, once you get into the hospital and you go through like neurological cases and things of that nature, it changes. However, strength and power and that neuromuscular aspect of things is clearly very important. Um, but in the big scheme of things, typically after something like a traumatic brain injury or a stroke, there's other things to worry about. Um, so I'll just try to keep this to more of like a outpatient orthopedic and sports population, um, that I feel like this would mostly be utilized in. Um, so like you said, the, the power aspect, when we talk about elderly populations, that is a big aspect of it. Um, we also see that in other populations as well. Um, other neurological populations. So Parkinson's disease is another population where we see power um, be reduced by quite a bit. Um, And it it can be tricky to utilize that in that population. But for the elderly, again, that's really the first characteristic that we see decline pretty rapidly is power. Um, So being able to utilize a velocity-based training profile for them can be very effective in not only regaining that power, but also taking away or being more precise in your prescription. So we, especially with elderly individuals, we have to be very careful with um, a lot of the other comorbidities that they may have. So typically as you get older, you know, you, I don't want to say start collecting, but you start to have more comorbidities, um, whether that be like things like high blood pressure, taking more medications, and all of these things have a combined effect upon the individual. Um, And that can lead to some issues or lead to some unsafe circumstances when we talk about resistance training or um, just training in general at a higher intensity or with a specific intensity. So utilizing velocity-based training, I feel like we can be very much more specific in the prescription overall. Um. And then when we talk about a lot of the populations from an orthopedic and sports standpoint, when we talk about things like I'll utilize like an ACL reconstruction for, for instance, um, one of the biggest things that we look at that are quadriceps, right? The development to get the strength into the quadriceps. But the first aspect of that is the neuromuscular component. Um, The neuromuscular component is can be very tricky with a lot of instances, but you also have to be very conscious of the fact that this, in, that this individual just went through surgery. Um, and there, you know, when we talk about the healing process after any type of post-op, especially at the ACL, we talk about the graft, biologically speaking, doesn't heal for about one to two years, roughly. Um, so we have to be able to very accurately load the individual so that we get that neuromuscular component to get the quadriceps going um, and to really not be afraid to load it at, you know, appropriately. We're not loading them incredibly high two days after surgery, but um, using velocity-based training, you can get just a better and more accurate prescription of, you know, when, number one, when that quadriceps is actually functioning properly through like a neuromuscular lens, um, because you'll see a lot of times that 
it'll be a little aberrant when we when they first start they don't have total neuromuscular control so that first aspect that you were talking about with really targeting neuromuscular control that i see is incredibly useful in patients like in acl reconstruction or really any post operative aspect or post traumatic injury of any type like um whether that be through a contact injury um a operation of some sort it can be very useful because that's typically the first thing that is heavily affected is that nervous system and then the second component getting towards like that hypertrophy and really this true strength adaptations which we know don't occur for at least six weeks with consistent training we know that that neuromuscular component starts first and then we have that hypertrophy and strength gains occur much further down the line um we still have to be very cautious of the fact that they're utilizing the right muscle and that we're watching other things in their program like their irritability um, their psychosocial status and things of that nature and the velocity-based training, you can make that individualized not only for the person, but for each and every session. So that's a huge advantage in that I can have somebody that just is not having a good day and still be able to properly tax them or properly apply stress to the areas that I need to in order to um, engage or I guess uh, create a stimulus for that physiological adaptation that I'm looking for in an accurate manner, that's not going to be detrimental to the patient. And I think that's, that's one of the biggest and most important aspects of EBT is that it can negotiate that line much more nicely than just using RPE or just using percentage-based training um, because there are flaws in that. But the the numbers behind velocity-based training and how quickly they move that weight and how, I guess, smoothly they move it as well can be seen through a velocity-based profile is incredibly important. And I mean, there's so many other examples I could talk about, um, but I think it can be beneficial for so many different patients. And even just looking at big movements. So, I mean, like we said, when we talk about the device that you utilize for this velocity-based training, I mean, if you look this, if we can talk about a little bit too, but this thing is essentially a box, a little box with a string attached to it that you put on anything that can be attached to. So it could be a barbell. It can be an ankle strap if you want to. It could be anything you can attach it to. Um, and that can be incredibly versatile in this in a clinical setting because you can use it for all sorts of different exercises. And I'm not necessarily aware of like the research behind the validity and the reliability between like different movements and um, things of that nature because I know that may change. Um, but the fact that I can utilize it for roughly quite a few different movements, you know, ranging from a, a squat to a deadlift to just a straight knee extension to, you know, shoulder external rotation strength. It's incredibly versatile. It's incredibly specific to the person. 
and to what their needs are. And it's a huge tool for me in that I can confidently go in and say, hey, I'm accurately stressing what I need to be stressing to create that physiological adaptation. And I'm pretty confident that it's not going to be detrimental to them. I know I just went on a rant there, but I mean, that's, that's kind of what I see from the clinical aspect of it. Um, and again, I'm a very young clinician. I, I just graduated school a f- few months ago. Um, so I'm excited to see like what I can, I can think of with this type of system um, with patients and such. So it's exciting for me that I get to you know, talk to you and learn from you now this early in my career rather than discovering this when I'm 20, 30 years in. Um, but yeah, that's what I think it could be utilized. And again, I'm very inexperienced and young with this. So I'm sure people will have objections to what I just said. Um, it's just my opinion. It's not, it's not um, advice by any means. It's just me more so going on a rant, if anything else. Um, so let's just talk about a little bit of like the technology behind the velocity-based training. Because um, I, I mean, that's an important aspect because we need to have that in order to actually do velocity-based training. Um, so what is the device that you personally utilize? Yeah, so I personally utilize what's called, or the brand is Vitruf. So mm. they're previously known as Speed for Lifts. So I'm actually uh, collaborate with them. Um, but essentially, as, as we discussed previously, it's, it's called a linear positions transducer. And um, there's very limited... Uh, ones on the market uh, and I would argue that Vitruve is is the best um, so essentially yeah it's a little box and as as we alluded to previously it has a string and you can attach it to a barbell or whatever you desire and uh, of course as as you move the, the string will move and it'll give you a, a velocity metric uh, average concentric velocity uh, peak velocity uh, can even give you range of motion, um, very like many many other metrics. I primarily just use average concentric velocity, so I'm not even sure um, all the different velocity metrics uh, that it does measure. Uh, propulsive velocity is is another metric, um, and they're on the market for about uh, I believe it's about 400 USD. So you know, pricey, but at the same time, if you're uh, a strength athlete and you're, you know, buying squat shoes and a belt, it's really not that much more money mm-hmm. and, uh, to, to buy one. Or if you're a clinician, uh, it's, it's really not that expensive of a tool to, to purchase and a very advantageous tool. Uh, and then of course, you know, you can, uh, have an app and, you know, track all your metrics on the app and have that for each individual athlete or each individual client. Uh, so it's really beneficial. Um, then you can also export it to an, an Excel file and, you know, look at the data, monitor the data, look at trends. 
you know, whether you're a strength athlete and looking at trends for estimated one RM or whether you're a clinician and, and, you know, looking at trends, something associated with, with rehabilitation, uh, can be really, really beneficial. Um, and these have only, these are like velocity based training is definitely an emerging area of, of research. Most of the research is primarily on resistance trained males, very limited in the clinical setting. I'm not aware of, uh, the research in the clinical setting. I, I haven't looked into it to be completely honest. Um, but again, the, the devices are, are very new, but what I think is really cool is that, um, the devices are now affordable. And if you look at the research, you know, like, um, say 10 years ago, what they typically use is other devices that were thousands of dollars that if you're a clinician or a strength athlete, you're not going to purchase that, right? Like who's going to spend thousands of dollars unless you have that type of money to spend. Right. So what I really like now is that they are affordable. And as someone that's involved both in research and practice, um, you know, I think what's really cool is that a lot of the research questions I get to investigate are, are ones that I want to know selfishly for practice. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think what's really cool is we can use the device, not just in a research setting, but we can actually use it in, in practice now, which I think is, is really beneficial. And like I said, I think it's going to be uh, really emerging area of research and and i've been interested in it for uh several years now just started researching it for for two years but um i've I've definitely had a keen interest in it for a while even before some of the devices came on the market for for an affordable price Um, so that's kind of a bit of the background about the the encoders and uh you know the research up to date yeah um yeah i'm not aware of too many of any research looking at like the clinical aspect of things like uh we were just talking about i think it is primarily towards um strength athletes and such but again you know part of the part of clinical practice and part of just whether it be strength and conditioning coach or as a physical therapist or athletic trainer is there's always going to be holes in the research um, so we have to utilize the principles and the best research that we have available to, to be able to, you know, postulate how it would be useful to specific patients. And I think there is enough research, um, within like the strength athlete realm that it would, it would be hard to basically say that it didn't have any type of application in a clinical setting. Um, I think it absolutely can and absolutely does. Um, I think that it it is just such a new and emerging i guess technology or really it's a technique honestly um that it it takes fortunately it takes a long time for this stuff to catch on to get into clinical practice um but you know i'm very very interested in being able to utilize this and seeing what it can help people with um i think it'll be very interesting from a a clinical perspective. Um, so before we wrap up here, I want to give you a few minutes and um, let can let everybody know where you know they can find you and contact you. I know some people listening to them to this podcast are power lifters themselves. Um, so where can people contact you and find you and take a look at your research? 
Yeah, so the definitely the best place to contact me is is on my website contact page. So my website is simply my name, landonhickmont.com. Uh, you know, if you have any questions or anything, uh, I'll be happy to get back to you. Uh, and then you can follow me on Instagram at landonhickmont. And then as well, I have a YouTube channel, Landon Hickmont. So it's very easy. Everything's just Landon Hickmont, landonhickmont.com at Landon Hickmont. YouTube channel again is, is Landon Hickmont. Um, as I said, best place to contact me is my website and I, I try to stay up to date on social media as much as I can, but as a, as a researcher and athlete and coaching, um, that kind of takes priority. Um, and then also I have a lot of, uh, free lessons on YouTube that are very beneficial when it comes to philosophy based training, kind of looking at a lot of novel concepts that have yet to be investigated in the research and, um, just touching on your previous point, um, you know, I think what's always interesting is I think in the uh, strength athlete realm or cl clinical realm, like a lot of what we do in practice is ahead of kind of what we do in research. And I know that's kind of backwards, but it just takes so long for research to get published, to investigate questions, especially in, in the field of exercise science, which is relatively new and, and I would say small in comparison to some other fields. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I was just listening to something about this. It, it is kind of backwards in our field in that, you know, when you look at yeah, like the medical field or like pharmaceuticals, right? They don't, it's, they go through multiple fields of testing with a specific medication or drug, and then they utilize it. With our profession, we basically try something out in the field and then we go research it and see if it works. So it is exactly. kind of backwards in that nature. But at the same time, it allows our research to really be focused on things that we're very interested and intuitive about, like topics such as this. Um, but it, it is very strange. And I think you, you definitely have to take, you know, research with a grain of salt, especially within the physical therapy realm and the strength and conditioning realm, um, because there's always going to be holes in the research. And that's where, you know, our clinical expertise and uh, our experience in general can help to fill in those gaps. Because, um, I mean, no matter how much research we have, there's always going to be holes that we, we're just uncertain of. Um, so I think that's, that's important to know as well. And somebody who's trying to get into the research, trying to be better with analyzing literature and looking into the literature more and more, um, you see the, the holes that are there. And you, you see the, even the research that we do have is sometimes not of the best quality, um, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, I think that was a great discussion. Um, I'm very thankful for you coming on to the show. Um, and, you know, maybe we can talk again in the future, possibly, if you know, more research comes up or we start to use this or I start to see this being used more clinically and whatnot, I think it'd be another interesting conversation to, to have in the future. Definitely. Thank you so much for having me on, Zach. I really, really enjoyed the conversation for sure and hope, hope um, those listening can take something away from it for sure. <laughs>